This is a Federal News Network podcast. With more business travel returning for people in the Defense Department, the cumbersome defense travel system is cranking up more. Now, though, it looks as if the Pentagon is going to replace the whole system. And officials have already begun contract talks. With this and other late DOD matters, Federal News Network Scott Massioni and Jared Serbu. And Jared, would it be safe to say that the defense travel system would get an F in customer experience if it were rated in some manner? A hundred percent. There's a lot of competition for bad IT systems and, and bad websites in the Department of Defense and across government. But this would probably easily be in the top five in terms of how much it is just universally reviled by everyone who uses it. So good that they're replacing it. It it sounds like this is basically on the fast track and that uh, the prototype program to replace DTS has been basically successful. The plan here is to replace it with essentially a commercial off-the-shelf software made by Concur Technologies, SAP Concur. They've spent the past two years on a prototype project after awarding an other transaction agreement to Concur back in 2018. Um, so what the, the the next phase that's happening here essentially is they're letting industry know we're uh, we're going to do a sole source award to expand this uh, expand the use of this system throughout the rest of the department. The questions around this issue for me are the strange way in which DoD has gone about procuring this platform. They, as I said, used an OTA to do it and claimed at the time, which I'm not saying they're wrong, but claimed at the time that SAP Concur is a non-traditional defense company, which is one of the criteria that, that allows for the use of other transaction authorities. It's probably technically true, but as we pointed out in a story a couple years ago, the parent company, SAP, has had 800 defense contracts over the past decade, so the, the larger firm is certainly not <laughs> averse to uh, to government business. And it may well be a successful program, but the downside of using OTAs from a transparency perspective is we can't see the solicitation, couldn't see it two years ago, couldn't see how many people competed. It was all done inside a consortium um, where there is uh, little to no transparency as to the government procurement process. And it's difficult to understand how something like this couldn't have gone through a traditional FAR-based acquisition. And as you say, it's hardly a product that would come under OTA for being a prototype. I mean, we use it in our own company. I've got I've got Conquer on my phone. <laughs> so yep. it's hardly something out of the blue that they're developing from scratch. No, it's not. I mean, the difficult part of this, I think, was integrating this platform with DOD's existing financial systems, right. enterprise resource planning systems, and personnel databases. And that that is a bit of a complex endeavor. But it's also why I think they, they need to sole source this, because they've spent two years and $15 million doing all that integration work. And there is no other platform out there that's going to be able to perform all those same functions after spending that two years of work. Do they have a timeline? Uh, nothing as of yet. Uh, there, there's nothing mentioned in this sole source notice yet, but we do expect to get some news fairly soon. This 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 is almost certainly an indication that they plan to uh, make a contract award soon, and they're going to have to get into negotiations with uh, SAP Concur to figure out exactly what the price tag for the full implementation is going to be. And Scott, speaking of acquisition and non-traditional methods, the Air Force is looking to fill its top space acquisition role. That's right. If you remember during the creation of the Space Force, the whole point of creating this force, or at least one of the points of of it, was to centralize the way that acquisition for space products and space weapon systems, uh, you know, centralized that organizational structure. Um, they haven't necessarily done that completely yet. And one of the biggest issues is around this uh, space acquisition executive. So 
First of all, the Space Force and the Department of the Air Force aren't exactly sure what that main space acquisition executive is going to be yet. Uh, One of the possibilities is that it could be the Undersecretary for Space and Acquisition and Integration. So uh, that's one possibility for that. The other possibility is it could be something within the Space Force. It could even go to the uh, Chief Space Officer if they wanted to do something like that. So they have uh, a few options that they want to do. But for now, that space, and ac- space Acquisition Integration Office is not necessarily filled. There's a person in there performing the duties of, basically. So what the Congress wanted to happen is to have this this space filled by October 2022. But until then, things are still sort of just in the air, moving around a bit, and they don't have everything coalesced at once. So uh, whenever they do appoint this one person, they will be in charge of the Space Development Agency, the Space Rapid Capabilities Office, and the Space and Missiles Systems Center. So it's going to be a very powerful office and one that will really centralize that acquisition process within the uh, the Air Force. And do you think they'll have as much contact with the commercial space industry that seems to be exploding to the degree that NASA does? I don't know if it'll be to the degree that NASA does, but uh, they're definitely reaching out as much as they possibly can to private industry. Uh, I know that SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and the others have all been interested in working with the Defense Department, and the Defense Department's been interested in working with them. Anytime that the Air Force can make things easier and get a commercial solution, I think they'll grab that uh, possibility as quickly as they can. Because they do occasionally put up billion-dollar satellites, and a couple of years ago they lost one, and that was with a well-known, long-time space contractor. So reliability is equally important to them as it is to NASA. NASA, of course, putting people on commercial rockets, so Space Force wouldn't be doing that, but nevertheless, high-value assets. Right. Well, we have the Space uh, Development Agency, which right now is trying to put up really fast, quick, and cheap satellites, and they're definitely relying on the private industry to do that. And what that does is sort of creates a, uh, you know, all domain command and control sort sort of uh, ISR that they can look into and, and watch the world and, and then maybe put that in with the joint all domain command and control as well at some point. So, uh, you know, that's definitely something that they're working on. And then while we have you, Scott, you're writing also today that the Marine Corps is pushing for time, extra time, more time than they've had for new mothers that are also Marines. That's right. They're pulling some interesting uh, strings here to get uh, mothers some more time after uh, they have a child or adopt a child. And uh, the new policy doesn't explicitly give mothers uh, five months off afterward, but it gives them the opportunity to take five months off. And the way they do that is they get the 12 weeks of maternity leave. And then the Marine Corps Commandant General David Berger has encouraged commanders to allow mothers to take sick leave and other forms of leave uh, after their maternity leave is used up. So they can just talk to their commanders, the commanders will work with them. And that way they can take another 60 days of annual leave and even get advanced uh, leave uh, taken before they actually earn it. Uh, just to make sure that they can adjust to this new life and and really, uh, you know, take care of the child that they've uh, taken responsibility for. One other thing to point out is that General Berger has said in the past that he believes that women should get a whole year off. And uh, so this is just maybe one way that he's kind of chipping away at that. Federal News Network, Scott Massioni, thanks so much. Thank you. And we heard from Jared Serbu. Check out their latest DOD Reporter's Notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. 
Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, 
who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of of them, of of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, Who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision, and I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the, 
Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.